Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm Lori Barkman. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself the business transition Sherpa. This podcast guides entrepreneurs from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. What do I do when I'm not hosting a podcast? I work with owners to maximize business value with my firm, small.big. And as a certified mergers and acquisitions advisor with Stony Hill, I guide you through the complex process of selling your company. Tune into Succession Stories for weekly insights to reward your hard work and avoid succession regrets. Hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and sign up for our newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Here's to your success. Is this the year to sell your company? Don't leave your exit to chance. Stony Hill Advisors works with entrepreneurs like you to get ready for what may be the biggest transaction of your life. Learn what your business is worth by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. How do you master something you've never done before, like selling your business? Entrepreneurs don't start and build their companies on their own, and neither should they plan their business transition or exit strategy without trusted experts in their corner. My guest, Jeffrey Feldberg, is the co-founder and CEO of Deep Wealth, a company that helps business owners learn how to prepare for a maximum value exit. Jeffrey founded and scaled an e-learning company, Embanet, with his partners and eventually sold the business. Incredibly, they rejected the first offer for seven figures, but ended up selling it two years later for nine figures. I love my discussion with Jeffrey on the story behind the story of this impressive accomplishment. Key to his success was understanding that the skills he used to build his business were not the same skills to sell it. Having excellent advisors and preparing before a merger or acquisition can also help you increase the value. You have one chance, don't gamble with your future. If you're thinking about selling your company one day, you'll wanna take lots of notes. Enjoy this week's Succession Stories with Jeffrey Feldberg. Jeffrey Feldberg, welcome to Succession Stories. We met because of your show, which is a great show, Deep Wealth Podcast. And I was so fortunate to be one of your guests and I encourage the listeners to listen and check it out and learn so much more about you. And we had a great conversation. And it's my honor to welcome you to the show today. Well, Lori, thank you so much. It's a pleasure, honor, delight to be here. Congratulations. You just celebrated your 100th episode a few episodes back. Big, big milestone. And it's really an honor to be part of your community. So thank you. Thank you. And we're going to talk a lot about the successes that you've had as an entrepreneur and what you're doing today to help other entrepreneurs. But I want to use the time machine and go back and talk about your background, because I think that it's a great place to start. So often on my show, we end up talking about the entrepreneurial gene. I'm convinced there is an entrepreneurial gene. I'm wondering what you think. In your experience and your background, did it start from a young age? Yeah, I was born an entrepreneur, and I may lose some friends. I may make some enemies with, with what I'm going to say. I, I do think you are born either you have it or you don't. And I mean, I was very fortunate. My heroes growing up, my my mentors, the, the people who really sculpted and molded me were both my father and his brother, my uncle. 
and in their own right, two very successful entrepreneurs. So as a young boy, I, I still remember, and you, you talk about this, I'm smiling because I remember I was six, maybe seven, and I would dream about the day I'd have my own business. I didn't know what that was. I didn't really know what does that mean and what that's going to look like, but I just had an inkling, okay, Jeffrey, you're going to have your own business one day. You're going to be a business owner. And my dad would fuel the fire. I would work in his business and my dad passed away. And unfortunately, we all miss him. But he was a sucker for infomercials. And, you know, he would see all these, you know, there's a Think and Grow Rich infomercial that came out and he bought me the book and got me hooked on that and all these different business things. So he really fueled the fire for me at a young age to really begin to appreciate, okay, what's business all about and what does that mean and how can I make a difference out there? So for me, I was born into an entrepreneurial line of a family and really growing up wanted to at least do as well, maybe even better if I could than what my family had done to that point. I I was really first generation, one and a half generations. Uh, my my family was immigrants coming to the country. And, you know, you've heard all the stories. I'm, I'm sure we hear them out there, maybe even on your podcast or others, you know, they came with nothing but the clothes on their back and worked their way through. And that is really true with my family. And, and so growing up and having that immigrant mentality You've got to prove yourself. You've got to work harder. You've got to show everyone why you, as opposed to someone else, and, and not take anything for granted, was really instilled in me day in, day out. What was the business that your father and your uncle were in? And did you want to work with them? Well, there were two separate businesses. So my father was a pharmacist. And it's interesting, my uncle didn't go to university. He worked so my father could go to school. And, and the, the two of them were, were very close. There's a whole story behind the story. But my father was a pharmacist. He had eventually had his own pharmacy. And it wasn't just a retail pharmacy. He serviced nursing homes, retirement homes. He joked with everyone. He was a drug peddler, a drug pusher. He would have prescriptions go to the, the nursing homes and the retirement homes. And my uncle in his own right and with his side of the family, built up a very successful furniture business. And, you know, truth be told, I was offered to go into my father's business. I never really broached it with my uncle. I, I suspect perhaps there would have been an opportunity there. But in my mind, I didn't want to do it because I said to myself, Jeffrey, create your own opportunity. You're, you're either going to hang yourself by your own rope or you're going to climb out of the pit. But whatever you do, it'll be on you either way. And let's just see what you can do. And I really wasn't passionate about most of the things that I was doing at that time. And I didn't realize where my trajectory would take me. I mean, pharmacy was great for my dad. It just wasn't really for me and, and didn't really turn the dial for me. But I, I, I was a geek growing up. I loved technology. And if you gave me the choice, okay, you can geek out and be on computers had just come out at the time. The internet was nowhere near around. It didn't exist. You know, that we're talking when I was a teenager, it was in the early 80s, uh, just to date myself a little bit. And it was more like CompuServe, America Online. And I just loved going on, on those services and learning about technology. But I also had a passion for education and for helping people and didn't really know at the time where that would lead. But thankfully, I played to my strengths when I eventually went out there and ended up doing that. But I, I knew if I didn't do that, if I went into the family business, I would likely be bored, wouldn't have a great outcome. 
And you hear all those stories about family dynamics and family businesses. For some people, it works. For me, it likely wouldn't have. Well, it's good to know yourself. And number one thing is fit. I love when people can find something that they're truly good at, but then they also enjoy it. Isn't that the best? And young people, it's hard. We don't really know until we're older and we can look back and go, oh, why didn't I do that sooner? So there was something within you where you, you were interested in education, you're interested in technology. We're giving the audience a little bit of a flash forward. We're going to get there in a moment where you built a, a company and long, hard work, but you eventually sold that business. So we'll hold that thought for a moment. I want to talk about the things that you started in between, where maybe they weren't the home run, right? You didn't sell those other businesses for nine figures like you did your education business. So let's talk about the businesses that got you there along the way, especially if they didn't make it. I'm really interested to hear what you learned on that journey. For sure. And Lori, let's get one thing straight. I have made more mistakes than I've had successes. This is not a story that Jeffrey just woke up and threw his hat in the ring and was successful from start to finish. As I jokingly say, if I could get paid even a dollar for every mistake that I made, I wouldn't have needed my liquidity event. I would have been well ahead of that for all the mistakes that I made. So growing up, being entrepreneurial, one of the first things that I got into, outside of working at my father's pharmacy and doing the deliveries with them and just getting a sense of the business and doing the banking with them on the weekends for the business, I got into a multi-level marketing opportunity. I was selling water purifiers and looking back, God bless my family because they tolerated me and my neighbors. But I look back now and I didn't realize at the time, Lori, I was terrible. I mean, I would get up, I would do these presentations and I was nervous and I was sweating. And I remember this one presentation in particular, I was right at the next door neighbor and I'm presenting to the husband and one of his kids is there. And, and the kid says to the dad, hey, dad, why is Jeff, why is there water coming down from Jeffrey's face? Why, why is a water purifier not working? What's, what's happening with that? And it was just a, a disaster with that. So... <laughs> Talking and presentations wasn't natural for me in the beginning. I had the inkling that I wanted to, to be in business, but I, I stuck with that and I did okay on the multi-level marketing side and did that throughout high school. But again, that immigrant mentality and, and that whole background was Jeffrey, focus on school and we'll make sure that you're not going to lack for anything. You know, my family was in the beginning, it was lower middle class. I didn't want for anything, but I didn't really know any better at, at the time anyways. Life was just great growing up. And eventually, as my dad's business, when I was later on in, in my late teenage years and, and young adult, uh, he became more successful and the family moved up status-wise. But growing up, they provided for what I needed. And then when I was in university, the multi-level marketing gave way to a video production company. And so... Our mitzvahs, but mitzvahs, weddings. Uh, my dad even got us a corporate gig with a, a pharmacy company who was launching a, a new product and doing that and just now really being out there. And again, there's the technology part and helping the people and just putting together these beautiful narratives and stories of the events and, and the recaps and just seeing the joy on people's faces when they got the finished product. And that's what happened uh, throughout university, particularly in undergrad. So you had developed sales skills, which is not easy. And I love the story about you sweating with this water purifier. It's a funny image, <laughs> you know? but good for you for trying that in high school. Even that that's not easy. Most kids are just trying to get through high school with, you know, their lockers and their, <laughs> and the angst, but you were learning selling skills and you were making customer connections 
through the video production business. And did you end up closing those eventually and saying, this isn't for me, I want to try something different. That's when you got your master's. Well, yeah, I mean, for me, it was never a choice really. And I I was just brainwashed. It was, okay, Jeffrey, you're going to go to school. You're going to go to university. And when I was partway through university, okay, Jeffrey, you're going to now specialize, you know, think of something that you want to do. And I'll share another little secret with everyone. I had to work hard at school. I did well in school, but it wasn't easy for me. And so I applied to go both into an MBA program and also to become a lawyer. And those standardized tests, the GMAT and the LSAT, oh my goodness, wow, they just, they just steamrolled me. And I remember I got a call from the law school and I must have been the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the list. So after they went through everyone that they wanted and they still had a space or two, they called me and they said, okay, we have to know right now though, do you want to come to law school or not? And I hadn't heard back. I had also applied to my MBA program and I hadn't heard back. And and so I had to make it at that point, looking back, it was a life-changing decision. I had no idea at the time. I'm still waiting to hear back on a few other options. You really have to know right now. Can I think about it? No, we have to know right now. And so I, it just didn't feel right. And uh, that will be a recurring theme as, as we go through this. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to take a pass. It, it doesn't feel right. Thank you for the opportunity. I, I wish you all the very best. And then that, that prompted me to call the director of admissions at the MBA program. And I remember calling up and here's where the multi-level marketing and the presentations came into play a little bit. I said, you know what? I don't think no news is good news. I haven't heard from you. So I suspect either you've rejected me and I haven't heard back yet, or you're thinking about me and who knows where that's going to go. So if you're going to tell me no, tell you what, let me come meet you in person, look me in the eye. And if at that point you want to tell me no, terrific. No offense taken. At least we both know. What do you say? And I was told, okay, Jeffrey, come on in. Let's, let's meet. And we had that meeting and it was that uh, fire in the belly that I, I suspect the director of admission saw that eventually led me getting an offer into the MBA program. And I, I was young, I was only 23 at the time. So what uh, really made the difference was the entrepreneurial experience. I told, look, we see you have some businesses that you've done outside of school. You don't really have the work experience that some of the other people, your other colleagues would have, but there's a fire in your belly. Let's see what you can do. And I, I took that opportunity. You really learned a valuable lesson, and I'm so glad you shared this. So many 23-year-olds would probably say, oh, I haven't heard back. I'm, I'm going to just continue on my way. But you you circled back, and you had that internal fortitude to get the no, right? We Well, well some of us so often fear the no, but we shouldn't. We should just go for it, and you got the yes, which is awesome. So let's flash forward. You decided to start a company, and at the time, this would have been what, kind of the mid-90s when the internet was a thing and businesses were starting, but we certainly hadn't got to the level of technology we had to today, but you created a technology-based education platform. Tell me about that. Right. Well, the company Embinet, as it later became known, actually is tied to the MBA, and and that's where those life-changing decisions that we make when we're really so young or we're just making life that we don't even realize where it's going to take us. So I started my MBA program. And by the way, for those that are watching this, you can you can see I had a whole lot more hair. And if you're if this is audio, what you won't see is a lot of hair with me, but I had a whole lot more hair going into my MBA and I just lost it 
the hair and I was stressed. And in my MBA program in particular, there was a lot of group work. And so my group, we were meeting before class, during classes, obviously after class, on the weekends, on the weeknights, on the weekend nights. We were just meeting all the time. We were doing terrible. We were bickering with each other. People were dropping out of the program and it was a terrible experience. And I said, I can't take two years of this. There's got to be a better way. And so that's where the inner geek and he said, okay, Jeffrey, figure this out. Let's do some kind of technology. And so I created a system for my own group. And we went from the worst group to the best group in no time flat. And I kind of felt guilty for my classmates. So I approached my strategy professor at the time and I said, hey, you know, let me show you what we've been doing in our group. This is what really has given us back our time. We're enjoying the program. We're getting better grades. And Thanks to him, he loved what he saw. I said, Jeffrey, I want you to introduce this to your entire class, and you'll do it in my class when we all get together. So introduced it, and it was a little system. It was running out of my bedroom, so it was a dial-up modem. There's no internet. It was running on a Mac. It was a dial-up modem, and the first year started to use it. Word spread. Second year started to use it. Executive MBA started to use it. Faculty started to use it. The dean called me in his office and said, hey, what's going on? You have this renegade system that I hear is, is changing the face of education in the school. How can we work with each other? Because this is a good thing for the school. And again, taking lemons and making lemonade. At that time in my MBA program, it was terrible on the technology side. It was old, dilapidated technology. This is back when you had computer labs and everything. And it was just, it just wasn't happening. And so that gave me the opportunity to be able to put something together. And so as crazy as it sounds, you know, acres of diamonds right below your feet, I had no idea what I was gonna do heading into graduation and the second year of the program. And it wasn't until the week of graduation, I said, you know, Jeffrey, if you did this for your MBA program, I bet other MBA programs probably have a similar kind of problem that you can help them with. And that's where Embinet, Electronic MBA Network, that's where it initially started. And so that was the beginning of the e-learning company. And there's really two different chapters to the e-learning company. Chapter one, hosting, technical support, course development. And we did that better and faster than what the internal IT departments could do. And I hadn't heard of online learning or, or distance education, as it was called back in the day, kind of stumbled into that. I remember one of my business profs always said, Jeffrey, give me the choice of being lucky or smart. I'd rather be lucky than smart. And so I was lucky. Uh, we stumbled upon this whole distance education. Actually, our first client, Colorado State University, uh, the business school was, they were doing uh, videotapes. And they said, we have this terrible retention problem. Can you help us with it? And we did. And they became more profitable. And, and we said, wow, there's a whole new world out here, not just with business programs, but with distance education or what we now call e-learning programs. And we we're one of the early ones. And that's how we got into that. And then the second chapter was really, again, going back to what is an entrepreneur? What is a business owner? Well, we go out, we find pain, painful problems that we're passionate to solve, and we're world-class at it. And so the same client, Colorado State University, I was having a call with them. And my favorite question was, hey, what keeps you up at night? And I was, well, Jeffrey, funny you should mention that. I'm having a board meeting. This was the associate dean, John Clark. I'm having a board meeting. 
And John said, I've got to go in front of my board and tell them that enrollments are down. And we got this video conferencing coming in. I got my competitors are setting up in town. And you got this crazy thing called the internet. I don't know where this thing is going to head. Can you help me fill the seats? And I said, John, give me two weeks. Wow, was I full of myself. Two weeks turned into two years. But uh, going down that rabbit hole of how do you fill the seats that was a market inflection point because at that time I knew things were going well, but I knew if we didn't change, they wouldn't go well. Technology was becoming more accessible, it was becoming easier. And if we didn't change and find the next big problem, we'd be put out of business. So if you're going to go out of business, put yourself out of business so you can put yourself into a bigger business. And the second chapter of Embinet, that's exactly what it did, where we now filled the seats and then kept the seats filled. You filled the seats because of uh, marketing programs that you would help the client run, or you did that because of other other things? No. So uh, going into a little bit more detail, what we ended up doing was we ended up not just filling the seats. We So we did the marketing, but we did something that people said was impossible. And for everyone listening out there, you know, I'm just a big believer as entrepreneurs, impossible to an entrepreneur is spelled I'm possible. And so what we did was we and it, it took us two years to figure this out, so it didn't happen overnight. And it, it sounds easy. And looking back, it's so obvious. It, it really wasn't at the time. I mean, first we tried certificate programs, and then community college, and then undergrad, and eventually we landed on graduate programs. And so we'd go to the president of the university and say, "Tell you what, we're going to pay for all the marketing. Here's who we are. We're the golden child in the industry. We're going to fill your seats. It's going to be on our nickel. Won't cost you a dime. We'll pay for your faculty. You'll own all your IP. And you know what? The first learner in the seat, you're already profitable. But it's going to take us many, many years to recoup that investment. And let's do a revenue share where we'll split the revenue and it'll end up over a period of time equalizing out. And everyone said, Jeffrey, come on. No university worth its salt is going to sign an exclusive long-term agreement where they're doing a very high percentage of revenue share. But what ended up happening was we painted the narrative, everyone got excited, and when they looked internally, they realized they had nothing to lose because left to their own devices, they knew where that were headed, where they were heading, but why not try this new thing and see where it's going? And it worked wonders. And so Boston University was the first, and then George Washington University, Vanderbilt University, and we started to really get out there with tier one institutions to make a difference. And as I like to say back then, and we take this philosophy even through today with what we do, we were changing the social fabric of society one e-learner at a time, from a single mother to a high-ranking government official to someone who's in law enforcement to a Fortune 10, 100, 500 CEO giving them the tools to make better decisions for themselves, for their community, for the people in their lives. And, and it really made a difference. Who is your most important customer? The person who buys your business. Stony Hill Advisors works with owners to maximize the value when you're ready to sell. Get started today with a business valuation by visiting stonyhilladvisors.com slash podcast. You talked about pain points. That is so important. A lot of times, especially with technology, we have this great tech. We want to put it out there. We want to make sure that the world knows how great our technology is, but we don't focus enough on what pain point it's solving. It's the classic with the quarter inch hole versus the quarter inch drill bit. What do you really need? You don't want the drill bit. You want the hole. 
And you talked about pain points a lot from the inception where you were the student and you were having problems and then your fellow students and the improvement of the team. And then it, it went on and on and on. But I loved how you really embraced that as a company and listened to your customers and tried to be nimble with what you saw the market needing. That is critical. At what point did you find that what we call the product market fit? Was it five years down the road, two years down the road? How long did it take? Well, in so the, you had the two chapters in, in Embinet. And you know, for everyone listening, at least in my case, when you when it comes to projections, my adage is typically take your revenues and cut them in half, take your expenses and do a two X or three X, and that's probably where you're you're gonna end up. So, you know, the first chapter of Embinet, Embinet one, as I like to say, that really it took us close to five years, between three and five years to really turn a corner. Three years, we started to turn a corner, but not until five years did we really hit our stride. And then for Embinet 2, it was a good two years. And again, this is now coming at it with experience. We had a team, we had a reputation, we had a system, but it still took us a good two plus years watching our life savings dwindle down, you know, month over month and having the losses creep up. And geez, if we make the right decision, is this going to work out? But it, it does take time to figure it out. Did you take on any partners or were you the sole owner? Did you have any venture money? So the company was bootstrapped. I'm, I'm a big believer in cockroach startups and that whole mentality and being bootstrapped. And I was incredibly blessed. I had and still have two business partners that really made the difference all the way through. And we were the perfect trifecta. We just complemented each other where one was weak, the other was strong, and we just had different archetypes that played off of each other that really made it work. When you say that, one, cockroach startup, what's a cockroach startup? So a cockroach startup is what Embinet was, and it's what most companies are who choose to bootstrap. And so why a cockroach startup? That, that term, which I, I didn't invent, but it, it refers to a cockroach, which, yes, it's ugly and, and you know, not the, the prettiest thing to be talking about, but cockroaches are virtually indestructible. You know, you can cut off its head, it'll still live a week, it'll survive. We're told a, a nuclear kind of attack and it, it doesn't need a lot of food and it's just been around for a gazillion years. So if you take that kind of adage to live another day and just to be around, so a cockroach startup mindset is where you're bootstrapping yourself, but everything is singularly focused on how do we live another day? How do we get real paying customers and actual profits, unlike what you hear with back in the day venture capital or what we now call private equity, where it's a very different game. Gotcha. And when you talk about the business partners, I've had a couple of folks come on the show and, and we talked about what made a successful partnership or what made it challenging. You talked about a successful three-way trifecta. One of the things you mentioned as to why is the complementary skills. What were some other things maybe from a lessons learned if someone's thinking about having a partner and they're listening, they're, they're wondering, oh, what, what else did they do to help make that work? Was it everybody had 33% and it was really split evenly or did someone, how did you think about the governance side of things too? Sure. So, you know, it started with myself and my then girlfriend at the time who later became my wife and Waleska. It started with the two of us and then we met at a trade show, Steve Wells. And 
we were talking back and forth with Steve Wells. And before we decided to work with Steve Wells, we said to Steve, hey, Steve, you know, we're going to be in town. Steve lives just outside Orlando. We're going to be in town at a conference. Let's meet your wife, Christy. Why don't we have dinner, break some bread and, and see what goes on. And we wanted to meet Christy because I, I knew that if we liked Christy and Christy liked us, things were going to work. But if that wasn't the case, we were doomed for failure. And we had a wonderful chemistry. But really what, what made the partnership work, it, it goes back to everyone had integrity and we were honest and we had each other's back and there was no misintention. There was no selfishness. It was really all about helping each other. And I, I was blessed. This was really my first partnership. And it really jaded me in, in the best of ways, but also in the worst of ways. Because when I've gone in, into other partnerships, outside of that one, I thought, oh, all partnerships are like this. And boy, was I wrong. And when I thought everyone's going to be like another Steve Wells or another Waleska, I know that that wasn't the case. And, and I got into problems with that. Uh, so it, it really goes, you can have all the agreements that you want and all the papers and everything else. But if the people component side, if it's not a good person at the start, it doesn't matter what happens afterwards, it's not going to have a good ending. You seem to be a person that has a strong intuition. You've used phrases about it feeling right. You've used the word intuition in this conversation. So yes, it was a little bit of luck, but you certainly had an intuition about your wife, your life partner, <laughs> and your business partner. And so that's important. Some people have that leap of faith mentality. I'll just jump in and see where it goes. And so you did from there. Let's flash forward then. So let's say, okay, Embanet 1, Embanet 2, we're talking, you know, seven, eight years now. At what point did you have thoughts about selling? Were you getting little bluebirds flying by and knocking on your door or saying, hey, we're interested in acquiring you? Or was it something amongst the partners where you all were just getting ready for a change? You wanted to do something different in your life. This is where a great partnership comes in. And it was really Steve Wells who said, you know what, guys, I'm a little bit further on this journey than you are. And I'm just kind of looking down the road. And, you know, maybe at one point we should talk about selling the company. And I'm, I'm glad he did that because left to my own devices, I probably would have just, you know, my persistence and we're going to make this work no matter what and, you know, keep it going. I probably would have just ridden the company as far as I could. And, and I don't know where, I don't think that would have been such a good thing on a go forward basis. And, and, you know, to the spirit of the partnership where we always looked out for each other, we said, okay, you know, one of us feels this way, so we're not going to ignore it just because I don't necessarily feel that way. Let's look to explore that. And so that began the, the whole journey. And, you know, right around that time, um, we also got an unsolicited offer and there's a whole story behind the story on, on that. And, that's, that's really what began the journey, not just for the liquidity event, but that also, I didn't know it at the time, was setting up the next chapter after Embanet with Deep Wealth when we had this unsolicited offer from a very experienced, successful buyer, Fortune 10 company, didn't know it at the time. It was the proverbial wolf in sheep's clothing, knocking at the door with a seven-figure offer. Everyone uh, who knew about it. Hey guys, that's terrific. You made it. Look what you can do. But again, Lori, to your point, it didn't feel right. And we said no. And, and thank goodness we said no, because there was so much more that was waiting for us that we didn't know at that time. So 
I want to talk about timing because I'm just so curious. So when Steve said, hey, let's talk about selling the company, was it around that seven, eight year period after launch? It, it was, well, Steve came into the picture, it would have been around four or five years afterwards. So it was a little bit of, of different timing. Uh, but the, the company was sold in the 13th year of, of okay. operation. And so we had begun speaking about this in, in and around the nine, 10 year mark. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That's what I was just trying to understand. So when you, when you launched that company, I guess, if you think all the way back, did you begin with the end in mind? Did you think you wanted to build, you know, as John Warlow, his book built to sell talks about so many entrepreneurs do this where they have the intent and the intention, but there's a lot of entrepreneurs that don't, they just get the company off the ground and, and then just see what happens. So many people who may be part of your, and we'll talk about deep wealth and your education company in a moment, but some people wait to the last year of maybe even their work life or their end of life. They just wait, wait, wait. And they think it, there's going to be some transition and maybe it happens. Maybe it doesn't. You guys had some foresight here. Did you always know that it was the intention to sell where you just thought, Hey, I'm going to run this thing till I'm ready to retire. Yeah. You know, Embanet, I'll share a little secret with you, you know, when I, and just between us, no one else is listening, of course. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, so when, when Embedded was started, I, I had no big plans or dreams that this is going to become some huge company. It was just, hey, can I just start a company that I really like, that I can make a difference, that can create a great lifestyle after, not before, after I've helped enough people to get that lifestyle. That That's really what I wanted. And let's see where that goes. So I didn't start out in business saying this is going to be a monster of a business that's going to do this and that. And in the early days, I would say to myself, okay, let's just get to 10,000 students, 10,000 learners. And, you know, as we got closer to 10,000 learners, the number kept on, on changing and Embinet would go on to do millions of enrollments. But in the beginning, that's really where it was. And, and again, that's where uh, partnerships are tough. And generally speaking, I don't recommend them to most people, which may sound like I'm talking out of both sides of, of my mouth. But partnerships are, are really hard to do. I, I've been in terrific partnerships. I've been in lousy partnerships. And they're easier said than done. And if you're in a good partnership, uh, consider yourself fortunate, count your blessings. And it was really because of the partnership, Lori, that we started to go down the let's explore the whole sell your business side. And, and Steve Wells gets the full credit for putting that on onto the radar screen. So for myself, it, it probably would have been let's just run this company and we'll continue to change and evolve because that's the example I had from my father and from my uncle who, who had done that. And that was really the model in my mind of, of what I thought I'd be doing. So when this unsolicited offer came your way, was that roughly around year 10? It was around, yes, it was around year nine, year 10, somewhere in and around there. And that's exciting because you probably don't know what the number is, right? Here they put a number in front of you. And you've said that, I think you've said even just now, and also in other episodes I've listened to you talk about your experience, it was a seven-figure offer, which is not shabby. That's a good number, right? For those of us that think, oh, wow, there's a lot of zeros there, right? That's a good number. How did you know that wasn't your number? I'm going to drive some of your community members nuts uh, because <laughs> it's, you know, I, it, it, what I'm going to share doesn't show up in a spreadsheet. You know, I didn't take the numbers and run it and put it into all these formulas. Oh, this is a terrible deal. It was just a gut feel. I don't know what it is. I can't tell you exactly. I, it just doesn't feel right to me. Let's not do it. And it, so it, it was an instinct. Call it the universe. Some people call it God. Some people just call it a, a gut feel. 
to me, it just felt off. You didn't have any advisors saying, hey, we ran a professional valuation for you and your EBITDA multiplier is this, and they're using this and you had the math behind it. It was truly just intuition. You know, Lori, we were just so inexperienced at that time. As successful as the company were, we were inexperienced. The buyer, potential buyer knew that, saw that. You know, the best thing we could have done would have been to hire someone like yourself and, and get professional representation. And you would have known right away, Jeffrey, what are you wasting your time with this? Let's you know, forget it. You know, let me work my magic. I'll put together a competitive bid for you and we'll really see what the company can do. But let me help you along the way, you know, uh, to do a few things before you get there. But no, so it was just ourselves dealing with this one buyer and, and for everyone else out there, unsolicited offers are the worst thing that, that can happen. You know, they're, they're not the best thing. And there's a reason that buyers love unsolicited offers. People like to get proprietary. It's hard. I think if we take an objective both sides, sometimes it can be a win because they don't have the time or energy to run a process themselves. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about your process. So you said no to the unsolicited offer, a couple of years go by, and, and then what's happening? What did you do in those years in between to prepare the company to sell? You know, what, what's interesting about the entrepreneurial journey is if we do it right, we can take what some people would say is a, your biggest loss and turn that into your biggest win. So when we said no to the seven-figure offer, we said yes to mastering the art and science of a liquidity event. And we learned a lot. We learned a lot about where our company wasn't because we saw what the buyer saw. We saw all the shortcomings. Now, in our mind, we knew what the company could do. We just didn't have the right way of sharing that narrative or being able to show the results. And so we reverse engineered the process and we said, okay, based on what the buyer went through, based on all, as we now call them today, a deep wall, the skeletons in the closet that the buyer was only too happy to put in our faces. Let's deal with those and let's find all the other ones that weren't found and let's knock them off one by one by one. But let's also speak to other people who have good intentions, who don't want to pick up the company for a song and a dance that can give us some good guidance. So we literally, as the proverbial saying goes with the phoenix rising out of the ashes, that was us, the ashes of saying no to a seven-figure deal. Some people thought we were nuts and we should have done it. We learned from that and we spoke to other people in the M&A world, buyers, sellers, investment bankers, M&A lawyers, strategists, you name it, and people who won big, people who lost big. And we began to put together a playbook or best practices, what we now call the Deep Wealth Nine-Step Roadmap. And we then put that to the test and we tested it on, on ourselves as a company. And what was amazing was Preparing for a liquidity event, the same strategies helped our company grow and become more resilient and become that much better. So we still made lots of mistakes along the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, lots of mistakes. But when we showed up this time to a competitive bid and we picked the right investment banker at the time and you know went through the whole thing, it was a different company. And it, you would not have recognized one to the other, but we could not have got there unless we had the so-called failure of saying no to the seven-figure offer. That's very consistent with what I talk a lot about on this show with other entrepreneurs who have been through a process, whether it's a success or a failure, you can kind of see that end in mind, right? Where 
the process of making your company ready to sell makes it a better company. And it's just, it makes good economic sense to why not work on the skeletons in the closet. And you can maybe share a few examples, whether it's on the financial side, whether it's in competitive marketplace, whether it's processes, the team, there's no short, you know, there's an infinite number of things it could be. What were the things that you found, Jeffrey, where if you recall, maybe the, the categories or some specific examples? Of what made the difference? Yeah, where you worked on those skeletons. What were some of those skeletons? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just a, a quick side note for all the listeners, because it, it's worth mentioning, and I'll talk about the things that made the difference. You know, but Lori, you're incredibly modest. So I'll, I'll just, you know, throw this out there for everyone listening as business owners and speaking, we're all business owners on this call and everyone who's listening from all, you know, one set of business owners to another set of business owners, you cannot master, we cannot master something that we've never done before. And for most business owners, selling a business, that's really something foreign to us. The skills that built our business are not the same skills to sell it. Lori, you know that, and I know that, but some people may not know that. And and so one of the biggest takeaways was to surround myself with the best, the world-class, absolute best advisors. Lori, I didn't know you at the time. I probably should have. You would have made that much more of a difference for me back in the day. But for all the listeners, if you're thinking about selling your company, get Lori on board and have her help you prepare and then do the whole process and the competitive bid you have one chance. Don't gamble with your future and you want to stack the odds in your favor. You don't want to level the playing field. You want to tilt the playing field. And so that was one thing, Lori, was surrounding ourselves with really world-class people who had the experience, they had the pedigree, they had the track record to be able to help us. We didn't have that skill set. We relied on them for that. Uh, The other big thing, and this is where a lot of business owners uh, find themselves, the business doesn't run without them. And I don't care if you're a 20-person company, and you don't have a management team, or you're a 200-person company, and you do have a management team, oftentimes, nothing happens without the owner. And that's a big, big impediment, because buyers want to do two things. They want to, first and foremost, minimize risk. And when they minimize risk, and only when they minimize risk, they're going to maximize the return on investment, and they're really mutually exclusive. So when the business doesn't run without the business owner, so there's no management team that's independent, that's a big red flag. And one of two things will happen. There won't be a deal or the value or the enterprise value, as we like to say. It just gets penalized and it goes down, down, down. So that'd be another example. And I'll round it out with a third one. Um, In Deep Wealth, in in our nine-step roadmap, we call these X factors that insanely increase the value of your business. So what's an X factor? An X factor is an area that a business is world-class in. But the challenge is, so for starters, most businesses have two to three X factors, if not more. But the challenge is that most business owners say, ah, you know, I'm the same as the competition. We all do the same thing. There's really not that big of a deal or a difference. Stop that thinking. It's completely wrong. And no judgments here. But really look within, every company is unique. You have your own world-class set of things that you're wonderful in. Your future buyer knows your X factors. They may not know all of them, which I'll get to in a moment, but they're not going to tell you the X factors that they know because if they do, guess what? They're paying more. And so it's like you're going to buy a home. Lori, if I'm walking through your house and it's up for sale, am I going to tell you, Lori, my goodness, this looks like 
the cover of a magazine and your furniture is terrific and your lawn and layout. I wouldn't change a thing. This is my dream home. Well, if I tell it to you, in your mind, you're saying, okay, Jeffrey, pay up. I, I got one here. I got one here. There, there goes my, I'm going to exceed my asking. Or Laurie, I'm more likely to tell you, well, yeah, it's a nice house, but there's some issues with it here. I, I really got to think about this. I'm looking at a few other houses that I, I think meet my means a little bit better. So I don't know. I, let, let's see where, where that goes. Same thing with a buyer. But when you tell your buyer that you know what your X factors are, number one, the gig is up. They know that you know. But you may also share with them X factors that they never realized. And those X factors, you can demonstrate, you can show and tell why those X factors are going to solve a buyer's problem. And the more of a problem that you can solve, the more you're worth to that buyer, then they get excited. And again, for all of you logical people out there, all you numbers people out there, I'm going to frustrate you. My experience is people make decisions, even buying a company for hundreds of millions of dollars, they make it on emotion first, and they will justify it with logic later. And just take me at my word for that or don't. That's been my, my experience. When you get your buyer excited through your X factors, another thing we call Rembrandts or other areas that, you know, a lot of them are, are X factors as well. But when you can get a buyer excited through your narrative and through how you position your facts and your data with your X factors, and you're in a competitive process, and you have someone like Lori who's leading the charge, that's where things really make the difference, and that's where you're getting top dollar. That's awesome. I love how you are helping us understand how to look at the business with the eyes of the buyer. A business that's not transferable is viewed as more risky, which then more risk means lower price, right? A discount, discount applied to the price. So whether it's asking, as you said, with the house, how often are we going to get, I guess it depends on the market, supply demand. If we have really niche, it's well-run company, the team's in place, all these X factors are there, plus others. Yeah, we should get, we should get top dollar. And the emotional side is really interesting because so many times of this is a fact-based type of thing. But I've been in some conversations where it's a privately held company buying another privately held, maybe their family businesses, and seeing the generation two talking to generation one across the table and what it's meant to them and what their family business means to their company. There is something special about that. Now in your situation, uh, I'm thinking ahead here because the nine figure exit was probably to a publicly traded company. If I'm going to guess, right. Was that correct? That you sold to a public company? Close. It, it was actually two private equity firms that uh, one firm was smart, well, they're all smart, but in particular, this one firm figured out who the competition was and they okay. said, hey, why, let's not beat up each other. Let's just join together. And, you know, something of something is better than something of nothing. And, and so it was two uh, private equity firms that ended up buying Embanet. Gotcha. And then they did a roll up or they just, they were kind of buying a couple of firms or were you the only investment in this space? So we were the first, uh, we were the platform. Then they did another acquisition or two and very proud to say they did very, very well uh, where they then sold the company, I'm going to say five to seven years later and uh, just did some remarkable things. And, and the company continues to, uh, to run and do incredible things. That's also something we talk about on this show, which is really educational. Some people have an understanding of a strategic buyer and others have an understanding of this financial buyer. Here you've got exposure to both in this story. So a financial buyer like a private equity group 
with an exit in five to seven years, that that is very common to hear that timeline. And, and sometimes we'll use the phrase that as the entrepreneur, when you sell to a PE group, if you stay on and then they are doing a roll up and they have a second exit, you get a second bite at the apple. Did you have that benefit that you had a second bite at the apple? We retained a very small percentage of, of the company. It, it was a, a little bit of the icing on the cake, uh, you know, for us. Uh, so there, there was something that was there. It wasn't a, a big part, but there was a, a small part that was sold there when they eventually sold. When you were doing the deal, deal is done, and now day one, okay, are you now an employee of the of the company, or are you a consultant? Did you have an earnout? What was after the transaction? What happened? You know, we were adamant and, and the system that we created that we now bring to market to help prepare business owners for their own liquidity event, we banished the word earnout. We don't even, it's not even earn for capital, it's the E word. We don't even know what, what that is. And because we had clarity and, and we had our deal points and our no-fly zones, we were very clear up front with all of our advisors, there will be no E word. in the, If there's even an E word in the letter of intent, that is off the table. We're not looking at it. And so in the competitive process, all the buyers knew, hey, uh, don't put uh, an earnout in there uh, because it's not going to get you anywhere. So if you're going to do the deal here, you're going to have to work around that. And uh, the serious ones complied with that. And, and it, it was a terrific experience. And off we went with that. And we were very transparent the whole way through when we, my goodness, uh, you know, there's hundreds of, of people or buyers that were circling in and looking and uh, the number of, of letter of intents that we received were way up there. But when we narrowed it down to the top three or five, we then researched each of the top uh, contenders. And what we found for the, one of the top contenders was they did a bait and switch. And so before we uh, even went to any next level or any discussions, this is where we went to advisors and said, look, here's what we've heard about this particular group, uh, please tell them there won't be a bait and switch because if they do that, the deal's off and we'll just go, if we, if we choose to speak with them, we'll then go to the next person. So the number that we're seeing here, please check with them that this is the actual number because unless there's some kind of material change, this is what's going to stay when all is said and done. And, and so just being very upfront uh, like that, doing your homework, being prepared really made a difference. Can you elaborate on that? What does that mean? You you talked to another firm and, and you heard of their challenges or you picked up on something. What was the bait and switch you're referring to? So uh, let's just say it was buyer A. So buyer A was notorious in the letter of intent for saying, I'm going to pay you X dollars. Then, and, and they made it a high number. And then they were selected. And then they're going through the diligence process. And then partway through diligence, oh, by the way, I know we said X, but the number is really X minus Y because here's what we found in diligence. And it was really all, uh, you know, not quite that case. And that was really their intent from the beginning. And how did you know that? That's from the word of mouth kind of back channeling that that was back, cha that. back channeling, uh, speaking to people where deals had failed, where deals had gone on, speaking to people who knew the group. I mean, just asking everyone and anyone uh, today to be so much easier. Because again, this is in the mid 2000s, 2007, to be precise. Internet was there, but it wasn't quite where where it, it is today. And so it was a lot of back channels and phone gotcha, calls. And, gotcha. Yeah. yeah, I think sometimes I've heard the word retrading. They retrade the deal, which can yeah. can feel awful while well you're on the other side of the table. So what we're talking about, I guess we should probably clarify for the audience in case they're not familiar, is sometimes referred to as an auction process where the organizer of the process, in your case, the investment banker, 
is inviting companies to participate in a defined timeframe and defined process. So maybe we just give a little bit of color. What was it that an interested buyer needed to do? So the interested buyer, what they needed to do was they got the the SIM, the confidential information memorandum and all of that. They signed a non-disclosure, which by the way, isn't worth its weight on paper unless you're prepared <laughs> to right. uh, defend it. A, a quick story, Steve was flying back to Orlando and he's in the airport at the gate waiting to uh, board the plane and he can't help but overhear uh, the uh, two other gentlemen behind him and they're talking about our deal and all of the details and they weren't part of the process. And and so someone had spoken to, to someone. So you just got to know that uh, going in. And we, you know, for us, we didn't focus on that. And, you know, to legals and lawyers and courts and this and that, you know, what, what does it really get you at, at that point? But just know that going in. And, and so what was involved was uh, there was a limited set of due diligence documents that was available, uh, enough to give people a sense of what was there, to come up with some concrete assumptions and to come up with an offer with some specifics of what was around that offer. And, and that's what was in the letter of intent. Okay, yeah, we're interested in the company, you know, based on these assumptions here, here's where we value the, the company at. And, and that's what we were looking at. Right, that's really helpful just to give people a sense of the process. So let's jump to what you decided to do next and when you decided, because it's gotta have been like letting your baby go, right? At this point, it was probably 15 years after you started the company. Now it's changed. It's the ownership's different. You've had a transition with an integration. Now what? Were you looking forward to the day where you could do something different or were you dreading it? It was both. It was both. And part of the decision was the company was growing and it's always difficult as a founder in a company. A lot of times the employees who helped get you there aren't going to be the same employees to get you to the next level. And that eventually caught up with us because Waleska, Steve, myself, we're not really corporate types. And the company needed a corporate type of thinking, a corporate executive who's very experienced and skilled in that area. And could we do that? Yeah, probably, maybe. Would we enjoy it? Probably not. Would we be great at it? Not really. And so we knew that whether we sold the company or didn't sell the company, we would need to have an really an, an executive corporate kind of mindset in, in the company. And partly because of the liquidity event, partly because of where the company was, we had brought on a, a whole management team to run the company. We did that a little bit late. Uh, the buyers rightly so penalized us for that because we didn't have enough time in the seat um, you know, for the management team to really uh, show and, and give some confidence to the buyers, although the management team was terrific with, with what they had done. So it was bittersweet, but I knew it was time to really have the company go. And if you look at it as a child, I know this is controversial for some people, a company is a child and this and that, but to me, I said, okay, hey, this is really a child and I'm giving the best opportunity for the company to impact even more lives. And yeah, that's something I would be really proud of that the company could then go become even bigger and affect more lives, continue to change the social fabric of society. And, and I can take pride of ownership of, hey, yeah, I was there at the beginning and was a steward to get it to this next level. And then some new stewards came along to take it even further. I've had some conversations with entrepreneurs. Sarah Dusick was on the show. She had founded the company with her husband and 
there was definitely an emotional side when she was when she was leaving and she was pretty transparent about that. And I appreciate how you shared what you just said. It's always a balancing act. At what point did you say, hey, I kind of want to get in this education game again. And I want to, you know, you created the Deep Wealth Experience, which is now, and maybe we could just talk about that for a good bit, because I think it's awesome. I think it's an amazing program for business owners who are wondering what they can do to improve and get ready for a liquidity event of their own. You've created a curriculum based on your experience. You know, you mentioned that a few minutes ago. What does it entail to go through the experience and what do they expect on the other side? How does it help them? So the Deep Wealth Experience, it's a 90-day system, and it's based on the exact formula, the exact system that was created for Embinet with a but. And the but is, it's even better. Because, you know, you'll hear me say these fancy terms, oh, we got the nine-step roadmap in the Deep Wealth Experience. Well, truth be told, we didn't have nine steps in, in our liquidity event. Some of the steps that are in the nine-step roadmap came from our failures that we reverse engineered and then put them into the system. So it's a 90-day system. There's three pillars. One pillar, it's all online, of course, you know, the online guy here, where your own time, your own convenience, about 30 minutes a day, you're learning the strategies for each of the different modules. So each module is two weeks in length. And so you have six modules for 12 weeks and then another two weeks, which will be for the mastermind group, which I'll, I'll get to in just a moment. So you're learning the strategies week one. Then week two, for every module, you take what you've learned and you apply it to your business. So the first module, no surprise, is X factors because this is foundational for everything else that, that you do. So in week number two, based on what you've learned, you're doing a recording for your mastermind group, pillar number two okay, here are my X factors and here is how I'm going to take them to market. And, and you're sharing this recording with the mastermind group. And what's unique about this is you are the world's expert in your business. No one knows it better than you. You can bring in the best management consultant, the most expensive management consultant, but they will not know the business as well as you know it. As business owners, we often have the answers. We don't have the questions. So we'll give you the questions. So you put that recording out there. Pillar number two, your mastermind group. Offline, the mastermind group is watching the recording and Susie comes along. Hey, Jeffrey, I saw your recording. Guess what? We tried exactly what you said. Don't do it. It failed for us. I can't recommend it. Or Jeffrey, saw your recording. We did exactly what you did and it was incredible. And in fact, here are three things you may not have thought of. These three things were a game changer for us. Give this a try. And so now you have learning from different companies or not competitors, different industries. You're learning their best practices. You're learning from each other. It's going back and forth and you have a bonding that's taking place. And then the mastermind group is meeting weekly, real time. So synchronous and it's with a success coach for one week. And the next week it's with a success coach and an ask me anything expert who's coming in. And Lori, we got to get you in on one of those. And I, I know it'll be a game changer for everyone who's going to participate in that. And then the third pillar is the success coaching, where you're getting very specific feedback on your recordings, on the workbooks that you have. There's close to 400 pages of workbooks that go along with it. And so when all is said and done on the 90th day, have you sold your company? No, you haven't sold your company, but you've done three really important things. Number one, you've created a very specific blueprint of how to grow your business that's specific to your business that you're really not going to get anywhere else. Number two, you stop believing and you start knowing. 
you don't want to gamble with your financial future. You've got to know this is the best advisor, that this is the best deal, that this is the best team, whatever the case may be. And then the third thing, as important, is you can now go to Lori and say, hey, Lori, look, I've been through the deep wealth experience and I'm here's my internal data room. I'm ready. I found all my skeletons. They're gone. Here's my X factors here, my Rembrandts. And it allows someone like Lori to really operate at a much higher level than she could otherwise to take your business value to the next level because of that preparation. It's an awesome opportunity. If people want to learn more about you, Jeffrey, get in touch, they want to learn more about Deep Wealth Experience, how do they do that? You know, just email me directly. I I monitor all my emails. You'll get a direct response from me. It's Jeffrey, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, at Deep Wealth, just like it sounds, D-E-E-P-W-E-A-L-T-H dot com. So Jeffrey at DeepWealth.com. You could put your feet up on the desk. You could probably travel the world and multiple times in a year. You could fly around and do amazing things. You've generated probably well for your family that when you think back to your your father and uncle, that story of coming first generation, they would never have imagined. But what I love about what you're doing, Jeffrey, is you're you're truly paying it forward. I can tell you are doing this because you're passionate about it and you care about the entrepreneurs who come in your circle. And I feel very grateful to be part of your ecosystem. And I truly hope that people listening, if they want to learn more, I think it'll help them quite a bit. And of course, I want to be a resource, you know, for the listeners too. And they know that. And that's why they're listeners to, you know, for the show, but your show also, again, I want to give it a, another shout out. It's a great program and, and definitely hope people check it out. And thank you so much, Jeffrey, for being on the show today. Well, Lori, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure and honor. Congratulations again on this significant milestone for your podcast and, and for your show. And thank you for doing what you're doing and making such a difference out there. Oh, thank you so much. And just a message to our listeners. Thank you for your support. You can always catch Succession Stories on your favorite podcast player and check out our YouTube channel if you haven't yet seen it, where you can find our audio, of course, in any player and our videos are there on YouTube for you. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show. And if you want to maximize the value of your business, plan for future transition, reach out to me for a complimentary assessment at meetlauriebarkman.com. Join me next time for more insights from transition to transaction. Until then, here's to your success. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand what creates value and what detracts from it, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Hundreds of business owners have taken my complimentary business assessment. As a first step, schedule a call with me by visiting meetlauriebarkman.com. That's meetlauriebarkman.com.